You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. see we had to really use a shoehorn to get everybody in here today so um, but thank you for coming Um, if you have a bible I'd encourage you to take your bible out if you didn't bring one there should be one in the front uh, back of the pew in front of you Um, if you if there's not one there put your hand up we have a couple of uh, ushers that are will race and and bring you one personally Um, and if you don't have a bible at home please take the one that's there in front of you uh we feel it's really important to have access to God's word. We want you to take that as a gift uh, from the church. So, uh, this morning, we're going to be spending some time in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14, verse 32 is where we're going to start this morning. And uh, this Sunday, on the traditional church calendar, is known as Palm Sunday. And it marks the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And you guys are probably all familiar with this. Uh, Jesus comes in on the colt of a donkey. And it's not not the way that the the Jewish people thought that the Messiah was going to come. It's quite quite the opposite. He didn't come in on a large white war horse. He came in on a donkey's colt. But it was in in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So he came in lowly and humbly, and, um, and this, it started the, it was the first event in a very busy week. I mean, this whole last week was just, it was a very busy week for Jesus and the 12. Uh, religious leaders were constantly coming at, at Christ. The Gospels recorded at least five different instances where they were challenging Jesus and they were trying to trip him up. Uh, the in total of the four Gospels, there's at least 20 lessons and parables that Jesus teaches the 12. And it's kind of like, it's almost like he's cramming, you know, before an exam. It's kind of like he's trying to get all this stuff in last minute. But, of course, only the teacher knows what the true deadline is at the end of the week, right? And that is uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which we'll be celebrating next weekend. So... Today, what we're looking at is the events that happened just after the Last Supper and just before Jesus is arrested. Okay, so Mark 14, verse 32. I'm going to read God's word here. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. 
And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let me just pray for a moment. Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the freedom we have to gather and worship your word. I just pray that, uh, I pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit, empowerment. I pray that my words be your words, my thoughts be your thoughts. I pray for those that aren't with us this morning and uh, that are watching online. Um, they're still part of the body and they're still very much uh, missed here. So we just pray that you open up our hearts and minds to the lessons that you desire for us to learn today. But above all these things, we do thank you for your grace and for your love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Now, it's really interesting because in the other Gospels, Luke says that they went to a place called the Mount of Olives. And John says that they went across the Valley of Kidron. So, it seems to be in conflict here, right? Both Matthew and Mark do say that they went to Gethsemane, but the stories don't seem to connect, right? I mean, is this proof that we can't trust our Bibles? Is this proof that the Bible's written by man and, and that there, it contradicts each other? Well, sort of. Maybe on the surface it looks like that, but with a little bit of context and digging a little deeper, we can solve this mystery. So, Gethsemane is actually the English transliteration of three small Hebrew and Aramaic words. Gat, G-A-T, Se, S-E, and M-E-N-E, Gatsemini. What do you think those are? It means oil press. So Gethsemane was a place where there was an oil press. And what kind of oil do you think they might have been pressing there? Olive oil? And if you were going to put an olive oil press, wouldn't it be convenient to have it perhaps where there were olive trees growing? And if there was a lot of olive trees growing and it was on a high place, wouldn't we call that a mount of olives? And if you were standing on the wall of old Jerusalem and you looked out, you would look out across a depression on a mount of olives where there was an olive oil press and you would be looking out across the Valley of Kidron, or what we would probably call the Coulee of Kidron, because really it's not, it's not like Death Valley or anything. It's not a big valley. It's not like the Grand Canyon. So, gee, with a little bit of context, maybe we can trust our Bible, right? So here we see Jesus and the 12. They've gathered in this garden. It was a privately owned garden. Jesus, on more than one occasion in the 12, they gathered there for some private time. And uh, so that they could, you know, get away from the crowds and, and have some one-on-one um, -on -one discipleship. But it is a little unusual that these 12 guys are sort of traipsing around at night, right? I mean, they just finished supper. They just finished the last dinner, uh, the last supper. And now they're, they're walking around in this garden on the Mount of Olives. And we're going to find out why uh, in just a minute here. So... Jesus oftentimes, Mark records several times in his gospel where Jesus oftentimes went away for a time of personal prayer. And that's what we're going to see is happening here. So in verse 33, 
it says, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So the unusual behavior continues here because the entire 12, Jesus and the 12, they go to the garden, and then he sort of separates the smaller group, his inner circle, if you will. And he takes Peter and James and the kid brother John, and the four of them, Jesus, they, they go off. And now Jesus begins to, to um, confess to them. He begins to open up a little bit. It's kind of like that was his small group, if you will, you know? For us here, we have culture that's out in the world. And then for us believers, we have the entire body of believers. And here in Olds, we have a smaller group, Redemption Olds. And then inside Redemption Olds, we have our small groups too, right? And that's a time where we can gather together, be a bit more intimate, come alongside each other, pray for each other, and things like that. So Peter, James, and John, and sometimes Andrew, that was the small group for Jesus. Now, we're getting to the reason here in verse 34 for the reason for this prayer meeting. Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Or some of your translations may say, watch over me. Now, for you and me, friends, if we are lucky and wise, we have someone that's even more intimate than the small group. We have, like, maybe a confidant or a mentor or someone that disciples us. And that's, that's very special when you have someone that could be help keep you accountable, that can carry your burdens on a more personal level. But Jesus didn't have that here in the 12, did he? I mean, he was the son of God. Who, he had some people that he could lean on, but nobody that would hold him accountable. So he goes off for a little bit and... Uh, he prays by himself. But we are to have these people come alongside of us. Um, it's referred to in the Bible, it's, it's often it's referred to as the one another. So I'm sure you've heard that phrase. For example, in Romans 12, 10, it says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Or Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for a full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you. In Philippians 2.5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how we may be spur, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So this is the ideal example, is the small group, to have the people that we can come alongside each other and help carry our burdens. But like I said, unfortunately, Jesus doesn't have that. He's, he's a very special example for us. So, but he does set another example for us. So perhaps maybe you don't feel comfortable in small group just yet. Maybe you've been hurt at another church, or maybe you've been hurt by another believer. But even here, Jesus sets another example for us and the fact that he approaches God the Father directly in prayer. So in verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So we see Jesus is in great anguish here. I mean, he prostates himself on the ground. And this is a sign of the pain that he's experiencing. 
Hebrews 5, verse 7 refers to this very event when it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So did you notice it says, Jesus was heard because of his reverence. But his prayer was not granted, was it? We, we kind of know how this story ends. Um, so, but his prayer was not heard, or sorry, his prayer was not granted. And it's the same for us. God the Father hears all our prayers, and we are told in Scripture that we even have the Holy Spirit, and we have Jesus Christ that intercede on our behalf to God the Father with our prayers. But that, even that doesn't guarantee that our prayers will be answered. Sometimes there's things that we ask for that just aren't the best for us. And I know what you're thinking. Well, why not? I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I sow the seeds. I do my giving like the prosperity gospel preachers tell me. Shouldn't I be receiving all my answers to my prayers? But let's look at the next verse for the answer. In verse 36, Jesus continues in his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from, from me, yet not what I will, but you will. That's the trick. That's the secret there. But now we're getting to the purpose of the prayer. The purpose of Jesus praying in the garden is actually threefold. Preachers like the number three, so just so you know. There's actually threefold reason for the purpose. Uh, Christ is asking here that if, if anything coming that way from that hour could be removed from him. So if it's possible. I think, this, I think at this moment in Christ's humanity, he's starting to realize what's awaiting him. And it's not just the physical pain. This, this is one of, the, one of the most difficult things about Christianity and understanding Christ, right? We have this mystery of Christ is fully human on the one hand and he's fully God on the other. And sometimes it's easy to, and heretical in some cases, if we go too far one direction. But I think what we're, experiencing, what we're seeing here is that Christ in his humanity is now starting to see what's coming, what's awaiting him. And it's causing him great anger, anguish. And it's not just the physical torture uh, of the Roman crucifixion. But with this prayer, we see that Jesus is concerned with the cup. And he's asking that for, it to be, for the cup to be removed. In the Bible, the cup and bowls often represent God's wrath. There's times when the Bible tells us God's wrath is stored up in a cup and waiting to be poured out. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 11:6, it says, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So this is what Jesus is pleading with the Father for him to pass by. The second purpose of the prayer by Jesus is to discern God's will. Now, we say discern, but actually, it's not really discerning because he's confirming God's will. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 9.10, Our Lord, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Christ Jesus. So this plan of salvation was already agreed upon before creation began, before time began. God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, they had all gotten together and decided that this very event was going to happen at this time. So it's not, he's not discerning God's will, but he's taking a moment here to pray to confirm God's will, that this is, they're still going with this. Second Timothy confirms for us that this was, like I said, all arranged before creation began. This was arranged before the fall in the Garden of Eden. It was arranged before the flood. It was arranged before the exodus out of Egypt, before the rise of King David, before the rise of the Roman Empire. Even before Jesus took on humanity and his human birth, all, all of these plans were already arranged be, between the Trinity before that time. So, friends, we worship a sovereign God. That's what we need to keep in mind. He's in control of all of these things. Jesus was not some poor fellow that was at the wrong place at the wrong time that was swept along in the plots of re religious leaders and died a horrible death because of what the Romans did. All of that happened because they had agreed before time began that this was how salvation was going to be, was going to be carried out. So listen to Psalm 2, verses 1 to 5. Why do nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us, the kings, burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and ter terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, do you honestly think God was surprised by COVID? Do you think that he is unaware of the plotting of prime ministers or presidents or premiers or chiefs of police or prosecutors or judges? He's aware of all of this. He's not, he wasn't surprised by Bill C-6. He's aware, God is aware of the rests of pastors that's going on. God is aware. People plot, God laughs. It's important for us to remember who's in control of all of this. So Jesus is confirming here in verse 36, he's confirming with the Father that with him all things are possible, but then in perfect submission, Jesus says, not yet what I will, but you will. This is the third purpose for Jesus praying in the garden that night. Jesus is our perfect example for us to follow in our prayers. Whatever requests we lay out before the Father, no matter what pain or anguish we are going through, Jesus was suffering here and read earlier in Hebrews, oh, sorry, and we read earlier in Hebrews that Jesus was crying loudly in tears. So whatever we're going through, it's important when we put forward these prayer requests that we keep in mind, not our will, but your will, Father. In Luke 23, 44, in Luke's account, in his gospel, he says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's how much physical anguish Christ was in at that time. 
And for years, this portion was scoffed at as myth or exaggeration by some. But according to WebMD, and we have several health professionals here, uh, there is a recognized rare condition called hematidrosis that causes a person to sweat blood or have blood-like sweat come from their bodies during times of extreme stress. Now, don't be confused here. I'm not using science to justify and prove the Bible, okay? Um, the Bible is my ultimate authority, and whenever there's a contradiction, I choose the Bible. What I'm doing here is I'm showing that when the scientists do finally catch up with the Bible, maybe we should give them credit for it. So, um, so back, okay, back in chapter 14 of Mark. Uh, in verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? So now, we can see by this passage that ooh, maybe the Lord's not too happy. I mean, because he, he stopped using Peter's nickname, Simon's nickname, Peter, which means rock. So now, Peter's not acting very rock-like, right? I mean, these are, these are grown men, professional. Fishermen often would have worked at night. Sometimes they'd hang a lamp over the nets to attract fish, and they'd haul up the nets. So these were men that were used to working nights. But Jesus says, Simon, he stopped using the, the pet name Peter. Simon, can't you stay awake? It's kind of like when my wife says, Paul, what are you doing? Instead of saying, babe, or hun, or sweetie, it's like when I hear Paul, it's like, oh, I have to go through this checklist. What did I do wrong now, right? So that's kind of what's happening here. That's what's happening here with, with Simon Peter. So Christ is saying, Simon, can't you just stay awake for a few minutes? Can't you watch over me? So, but at our house, so what's really interesting is that here, this is not the usual prayer time. And it says that, that uh, Christ had been praying for an hour, an hour straight, he had been prostrate on the ground. So, I don't know about you, but I have to confess, this is an area that I really need to work on. I mean, my prayer time, I try to be very devoted. We have set prayer times at our house, like over breakfast, before our first meal of the day, we pray for the compassion kids that we help support, and we pray for others in the church or for the church leadership. And, but praying for an hour straight, um, I just don't have that in me at the moment. That's, a, that's an area that I need to grow on in my sanctification. But Christ shows that, again, that's our perfect example. So he's in anguish constantly before the Father, praying for an hour straight. Father, please remove this cup. He knows what's, what's coming. And uh, so, but he, then he comes back and he finds, after an hour of prayer, he finds Peter, is, Peter and the others asleep. So in verse 38, what we see is, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So we see that the anoints that Jesus had for them when he came back instantly turns to care and compassion for them. And now he's warning them, be on your guard. Um, the spirit, watch and pray that you may not enter into, into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows that this is the time that Satan tries to attack. 
Satan waited for Jesus to be in the desert for some time before he came and tempted Christ. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 warns us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Satan waits, ready to pounce when we are tired and stressed and distracted and at our most vulnerable. So in verse 39, And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So now we see Jesus goes away for the second time, and Mark says that he was praying the same words. So now he's praying for another hour straight, and he's praying, making the same supplications and the same requests before the Father. And in Luke's gospel, it's actually at this point, it's with this second prayer, it's actually at this point in Luke's gospel where Christ begins to sweat blood. And the cause of that stress is what we're going to dive deeper into on Good Friday. And uh, it may not be exactly what you think. It's not just the physical pain and suffering that Christ goes through that has him so distressed. That's what's known as a teaser in the biz, so I hope you come on, on Good Friday. Uh, so, you know, I'm not surprised that anyone, I, I am surprised that anyone follows Christianity. If you listen to the language that we use, you know, we call it Good Friday. Our Savior was nailed to a cross and died. That's Good Friday? Or we celebrate Easter Sunday. That's when Jesus is, dies and laid in the tomb. And, you know, frequently when we get together, we, at the Lord's table, we eat his body and drink his flesh. I mean, to outsiders, we must sound like a bunch of lunatics, right? But they all have very significant meaning for us. And that's why, um, that's why I'd like to see here on Good Friday as well. Okay, so verse 40. Uh, and again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they, they, they did not know what to answer him. So now he's gone away for an hour, another hour. They're falling asleep again, and this time they're so embarrassed that they're not even sure what to say. They have no explanation for, to Christ. But this also points out a perfect contrast for us, doesn't it? I mean, here we see Jesus, he's trying to be, he is being completely obedient to the Father, and he puts out one request to the 12. Just stay awake. Just watch over me. Pray over me. And they couldn't be obedient. And it, to me, that just highlights the fact of how much we need a Savior, how much we need Christ, because we are so weak in our human condition that we need someone uh, to come alongside us. So in verse 41... And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? So he's come back. So now they come to the garden. He separates the three. He goes off for himself, by himself and he prays for an hour. He comes back. They're sleeping. He chastises them a bit. He goes off again and prays the same prayer in the second hour. Comes back and finds them asleep again. So now he's, he's gone a third time, and he's praying, and he comes back, and he finds them sleeping again. So we have three instances in this count of Jesus going off and praying by himself, and two out of those three times, Mark tells us he prayed the same words. So Jesus is being perfectly obedient, submitting himself to the Father's will, but what about this third time? 
What about this third time when he was praying? What was he praying? Mark doesn't tell us, but in the Gospel of John, John tells us. So in John 17, John chapter 17, what's known as the high priestly prayer, it's actually three different sections, and this is what Jesus was praying the third time when he went off. So verses 1 to 6, or sorry, 1 to 5, Jesus is praying for himself. He's, once again, appealing to the Father. In verses 6 to 20, he's praying for the, for the apostles. Jesus is praying specifically for the 12. He's talking about, um, about the 12 that, that God has given him. And then in verse 9, Jesus prays, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. He's referring specifically to the 12. For they are yours. So Jesus is not praying for the world here, but rather for his closest disciples. And he asks the Father to sanctify them in his word so that they, go, they can go and teach the world his word. And then in verse 20, Jesus, again, begins to pray for you and me. Well, not just us. He begins to pray for all believers. So you want to know what Jesus prayed for us? Well, verse 20 starts with, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Okay, what was he asking? In verse 18, Jesus is asking on behalf of the 12 that as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So just as Jesus sent the apostles into the world, Jesus also sends us into the world and we're to do the same things that the apostles did, and that's to spread God's word. And so what is the word? The word in scripture, in the Bible, teaches us, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the word is Jesus Christ. The word, it's not just the Bible verses that we share. We're not just to, to share the Bible verses. We're actually to share Jesus with the world. But how can we do this? Well, verse 26 in John tells us, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, for the love with which you have loved me and may be in them and I in them. So thanks to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that amazing gift that God, the Father, gives us when we place our faith in the completed work of his son, Jesus, on the cross. When we get that gift, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now we are able to read and learn from God's word and then share those lessons with others. We receive some of that love uh, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share amongst themselves and that fills our hearts to overflowing so that we can go out and share that love with the world. Okay, back in Mark, back in Mark 14, the second half of verse 41. And Jesus says, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus is not surprised here. Again, he spent several hours in prayer with the Father. He knew exactly what was coming and exactly what was going to happen. He's in control the whole time. 
And in verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Here we have the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus had made at the Last Supper. Just a few hours before, Mark 14, 18 records that the words of Jesus, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So G Judas thought that he was coming to derail the plans of Jesus, right? We know that Jesus wasn't doing exactly what Judas thought. Judas thought that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be this big military ruler and he was going to overthrow the Roman government. And because he wasn't behaving, because Jesus was not behaving as Judas thought, he betrayed Christ. And he thought he was going to derail the plans and make room for a new Messiah, a new military ruler. But instead, what Jesus, Judas didn't realize was that he was actually the catalyst for the plans of Christ um, that had, it was the providential plan of God all along. So, to recap, um, we see Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for three main purposes. First, to seek to ask the Father if possible, to let his cup pass by. Second, he goes to discern, or rather confirms God's will for himself. And finally, he prays to set an example of prayer in difficult times for us. So by doing this, we see Jesus as the example of perfect obedience to the Father and the perfect example for us. And then Jesus prays for the disciples and for all of us as believers in Christ, and again, sets the example for us.